Hey guys, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to a newer podcast, or at least a new one for me, and that's the Grey History Podcast. Now, rather than present a story in a way that makes it out to be black and white, William Clark has created a long-form show that deals with the complexities and the ambiguities of history. William is currently looking at the French Revolution, and if you want to understand our modern world, this is the place to begin. Now, this is one engaging and addictive show, so I'm warning you now, you're gonna be hooked. And with that being said, let me turn it over for a few moments to William himself. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History is a history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. A show that seeks to explore the contention and the debate, along with the simple who, what, when. The current season is focused on the French Revolution an era vitally important to understanding the world we live in today, and a period that no one can agree on just about anything. Hear the contradicting experiences and conclusions of both contemporaries and historians as we explore the grey in detail. And I do mean in detail. We're 50 hours in and the king is still alive. Although, admittedly, only just. So, If you're looking for your next binge-worthy long-form history podcast, one that's used by universities across the world, check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. That's G-R-E-Y. Hey guys, fall is almost here, and that means it's time for some fantastic new products from our friends over at Fable Beard Company. They've been releasing their fall lineup lately, and there's some great new products. One of the new ones this year is the Beard Master. This fun one features aged leather and cursed apple trees as the scent profile. Wow, <laughs> can't get much more fun than that. Another great one, this one's back from last year and it's my favorite from last year, and that's the Doll Maker. It has a scent profile of warm butterscotch, buttered rum, and candy corn. These are just two of the new great fall scents you'll find over at fablebeardco.com. Now, of course, they come in a wide range of different products that are perfect for beards and hair. They have beard oil and butter, but also a wash and a conditioner. And as I know I've said before, my wife loves the conditioner for her hair, and we use the wash for our dogs. Their fur has never been softer. Head over to fablebeardco.com and be sure to use coupon code SEAN15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. That's right, 15% off each and every single order when you use SEAN, S-H-A-W-N, 15. Okay, let's get back to the show. Okay, so today we are talking to author William Inboden, the executive director of the Center for National Security and associate professor of public policy and history at the LBJ School of Public Affairs both of which are at the University of Texas at Austin. Now, prior to his academic life, William worked as a policymaker in Washington, D.C. and overseas for the State Department and the National Security Council in the administration of President George W. Bush. Now, his new book, just released uh, yesterday, and we're recording this on November 16th, is The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink. 
Now, this is the first book to offer a comprehensive look at Reagan's foreign policy and global legacy. And I am so happy to have him on the show. So welcome to the show, William. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be with you. All right. So let's get into this. There's a lot here. Um, for those, you know, maybe who are kind of glimpsing, maybe just listening to this and like, what's this all about? Just give us an overview of the book. Yeah, sure. I think the first thing to say is I wrote it as a narrative. I'm trying to tell a story here, but that's because uh, I want to remind our readers that the peaceful end of the Cold War uh, on, you know, the, America's peaceful victory in it, it wasn't inevitable. And it was pretty unclear at the time. And so I'm trying to capture for readers, what did this look like to President Reagan and his team, especially in the early days of the administration, when you've got this, you know, terrifying nuclear standoff with the Soviet Union, they've got the world's largest nuclear arsenal, you know, pretty much all targeted at, at us. Um, we're coming out of, uh, you know, a very difficult economic time with, you know, high unemployment, high, un high, high inflation. Just a few years earlier, we'd lost the first war in our history in, Viet in Vietnam. Uh, we've, you know, coming out of the hostage crisis in Iran. So America is feeling weak and vulnerable and demoralized facing, you know, one of the most severe dangerous threats we've ever faced in our country's history in, in the, in the case of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so Reagan and his team have the challenge of putting together their strategy, marshaling public support for it properly resourcing it. Uh, every one of these is a significant challenge, uh, and they don't know how the story is going to end. Uh, they they have some hopes, they have some plans, right? I mean, they're not completely flying blind, uh, but when they start laying out their strategy, they get a lot of criticism for it too, because, you know, most experts thought this wasn't, this wasn't going to work. And I also try to show, even though the Cold War is the central part of the story, that these guys had very cluttered and busy inboxes. And while they're managing the Cold War, you've got a, a new threat of terrorism. You've got a, you know more American hostages being taken uh, uh, prisoner in the Middle East. You've got um, hijackings of civilian aircraft and civilian cruise ships. You've got major trade tensions with Japan and South Korea. Uh, you have multiple wars breaking out in the Middle East. Israel invades Lebanon. Iraq invades uh, Iran. You've got challenges in Latin America and Africa. I mean, the world is a real mess. And I'm trying to show how Reagan and his team couldn't ignore all that other stuff. They had to deal with those issues while simultaneously building out a, a cold, cold War strategy. And so that's why I wrote it as a story that unfolds. I'm trying to give the readers a sense of what did this uh, what did this feel like? What did it look like to Reagan and his team at at, at the time? Oh, you did a great job. It, it, it's a very well written narrative book um, for the listeners out there. I know I love history, obviously, but sometimes historians were not the best authors, yeah. <laughs> sadly. But this this is not if it's not a dry history. I can tell you that it, it reads very quickly. Um, and there's some stuff in there. You know, I, I'm not a, a Reagan scholar, but I, I lived through it and um, a little bit, I guess you could say, of a Reagan scholar. Not Obviously, I've not published or anything, but there was something in there that I had never heard, or if I did, I've forgotten it, maybe in my old age here. But um, Eisenhower is a mentor. That was um, a little bit of a surprise to me. And, you know, it was weird because I had briefly thought about just recently because I did a, a special podcast a series of episodes on Patreon on 1983. And mm -hmm. um, when talking, reading up about Reagan and stuff, I had wondered, you know, well, who was his mentor? And then it just kind of went out of my head, didn't mm -hmm. think about it. But you mentioned um, the fact that Eisenhower served as a mentor to Reagan. And that's really fascinating because, you know, Reagan, and obviously you know this, and some of the listeners probably do too, he got a lot of stick from people 
Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, if we had maybe if they had known that his mentor was none other than Dwight D. Eisenhower, mm-hmm. that's that's something that's a card maybe that he could have played. But can you talk a little bit about that relationship he had? Sure. It's a fascinating uh, story. And I, I'll share a little more with your listeners that I wasn't even able to put all of this in in, in the book. And I first want to give uh, credit where credit is due is um, it's two people who first clued me into the importance of Eisenhower for Reagan. One is Tom Reed, uh, who the former secretary of the Air Force. Uh, Tom served on Reagan's National Security Council staff. He plays an important role in my book. But Tom had also uh, helped Governor Reagan uh, when he was governor of California in the 1960s. And Tom was present for some of the Reagan first meetings with Eisenhower. And so Tom gave me some great stories in the, in the interview about that. And the other is a, uh, a scholar named Gene Copelson, who wrote a really interesting book on uh, the Reagan-Eisenhower relationship and Reagan's early political political career. So the story is this. Um, Reagan's first national political debut comes in 1964 when he gives his famous A Time for Choosing speech, supporting Barry Goldwater's Republican candidacy for president. Um, it's a half-hour nationally televised speech you know, available on YouTube. I encourage all your listeners to, to, to view it. It's really something Eisenhower at that point has, you know, four years removed from the White House um, and is retired in Palm Springs. And he watches the speech and he thinks this guy has got some talent. And so Eisenhower reaches out to Reagan and says, hey, I really enjoyed your speech. Come meet with me. Come visit me. Let's play a round of golf. Let's talk. And Eisenhower encourages Reagan to think about running for governor of California. Uh, now, other people were as well. But Eisenhower, you know, that says more when it's a former two-term Republican president encouraging to run for governor than just, you know, uh, friends at the at the golf club. Um and and so you know Reagan agrees and of course runs for governor. Um, but this starts a pretty neat friendship between the two that continues for the next five years until Eisenhower's death, where even after Reagan uh, wins the governorship, he continues meeting regularly with Eisenhower either in Palm Springs or even visits Eisenhower in Eisenhower's um, summer home in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And and Eisenhower just conducts what I call a series of foreign policy tutorials for Reagan. Um, you know Reagan already has some instincts. He doesn't like communism. He wants a strong America against the Soviet Union. But Eisenhower, of course, who has, you know, credentials better than, you know, anyone on the planet at that point, walks Reagan through basic principles like the importance of a really strong economy for supporting our defense industrial base, for supporting a strong military. The relationship between um, force and the strategic outcomes you want. Of course, at this point, the Johnson administration is dragging the United States worse into the quagmire in Vietnam uh, with kind of the worst possible situation of putting the troops there, but not with enough resources and support to actually win. while also not pulling them out since you're putting them in a, in a losing situation. And so Eisenhower walks Reagan through. That's not the way to do it. You either go hard or you go home, essentially. I mean, there's more sophistication to that. And uh, and Reagan really imbibes a lot of these principles. And he also gets from Eisenhower the importance of maintaining political support for what you're going to do. If you're going to do an ambitious and bold policy, you need the American people behind you and you need to explain it to them. And finally, the importance of allies. And Eisenhower, of course, had managed, you know, very difficult allies in World War II. And then again, his time as president. And so um, Reagan, you know, agrees with Eisenhower on all this stuff. But Eisenhower helps walk him through. This is what it looks like in practice. And so. When uh, Reagan, of course, you know, becomes president, you know, what, you know, 15, 20 years after this, Eisenhower is now long dead. But um, Reagan puts a bust of Eisenhower in the Oval Office. He puts a portrait of him in the Roosevelt Room in the White House. And if you look at Reagan's speeches, and I've read just about all of them, the predecessor that he quotes or mentions the most by far, it's not George Washington, it's not 
you know, Franklin Roosevelt, it's not Abraham Lincoln, it's Dwight Eisenhower. And so the the reverence is very clear. They have some differences. You know, Reagan is a little more aggressive even against the Soviets than Eisenhower had been. Reagan uh, engages more in the battle of ideas than Eisenhower had. But the, as far as some of those basic principles, he's drawing them directly from Eisenhower. And I think it accounts for a lot of his his successes as president. That's That's a really fascinating aspect that, you know, I'd never really heard of. And it's amazing to to think that he had this relationship with Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of cool, you know? One, one other little ironic part of it um, is, of course, while Eisenhower is president, his vice president was Richard Nixon. And uh, Nixon is, you know, had also made a failed run for California governor and was wanting to run for president in 68. And it was notable that Eisenhower is backing Reagan. And Eisenhower even encourages Reagan to run in 68. Not, not that not much comes to that. But um, uh, that shows you Eisenhower's eye for political talent, but also where Eisenhower's own principles were. And, you know, I, I, there's, I have a lot of admiration for President Nixon in some fronts. So I don't want to sound too critical here, but it's just pretty revealing about uh, Eisenhower's own preferences that, you know, normally you'd think, well, of course, he's going to support the guy who is his vice president for eight years. But no, he supports the other guy, Reagan. And his daughter's uh, father-in-law. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, there's some interesting. Yeah, there's some. Yeah, those those Thanksgiving dinners were awkward, I'm sure. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I can imagine. Um, yeah. Now, one thing that you brought up, um, speaking of Nixon, was the difference in foreign policy between Reagan and his Republican predecessor, um, the aforementioned Richard Nixon. You know, Reagan, mm-hmm. like Carter, and you mentioned this in the book, viewed foreign policy um, through the lens of morality, where mm-hmm. as Nixon, on the other hand, is kind of him and Kissinger, you know, the masters of realpolitik and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just being realistic and taking it as it really is. Um, and yet Nixon did have some influence on the White House. So, you know, what I liked is that it's not really just a case of black and white. There, There's... Mm-hmm. A lot of complications there. So I was wondering if you could just for the listeners kind of let them know how how did this all work out? Yeah, this is another really important part of the story, and I'm, I appreciate you ask, asking about it. So the Nixon-Reagan relationship itself is incredibly complicated, where they are fierce rivals. They have significant policy differences. I'll walk through those in a second. But they also, especially by the time Reagan is in the White House, forge a pretty close friendship and there's a lot of mutual regard while they still continue to have some differences. And so, uh, and you know, it's history now for, uh, for all of us, but we need to remember that over about a 40, 50 year span, Nixon and Reagan really dominated Republican presidential politics. Like one of them, or even both of them was on the ticket or strongly influenced the ticket in almost every presidential race from 1952 to 1988. Uh, and you know, I can give you the details on that later, but uh, so that's, so these are two Titans, right? And they have uh, some common backgrounds. They both come from, you know, underprivileged, hard scrabble backgrounds in the rural Midwest, and then both make their way out to California uh, for a fresh start uh, for upward mobility for the American dream. Uh, they both have difficult relations with uh, dysfunctional fathers and then pious nurturing supportive mothers, right? Um, uh, But then, you know, some big differences. The two biggest strategic differences in the Cold War, first, as you had mentioned earlier, 
Nixon is pretty status quo. He sees the Soviet Union as a rival power to be managed and balanced. You know, he's not soft on them. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want them to, you know, defeat us or, or gain more advantages, but he sees them as just a rival power to be managed and balanced. And that's why he and Kissinger do the detente framework. He doesn't want to bother them on human rights, on their oppression of others. It's more like you have your sphere of influence, we have ours, and let's just manage the differences. Reagan, in contrast, sees the, the Cold War as a battle of ideas. He sees the Soviet Union as an idea to be defeated, not a rival power to be managed. Um, and that's why he wants to support human rights and religious freedom and roll back Soviet advances in the third world and even in their own core sphere, sphere of interest. The second biggest difference uh, between Nixon and uh, Reagan is in Asia policy. When Nixon, again, they're both Californians. They both have a Pacific mindset. They both often you know, are looking west and seeing Asia as, as, as the future. But when Nixon looks to Asia, he sees it through the China lens. He sees China as the key to the future of Asia. And that's, of course, why he does his big opening to, to China. Um, and again, there's a certain strategic genius there, right? I mean, these are these are difficult trade-offs. When Reagan looks to Asia, he sees Japan first. And he sees Japan as America's first and most important Asian ally. At the time, Japan was the only democracy in the region. Um, and, you know, the world's third, second largest economy, depending on how you measure these things. And so Reagan pursues a Japan-first policy in Asia and sees restoring the U.S.-Japan alliance as the key to managing everything else. It's not that Nixon completely ignores Japan, nor does Reagan completely ignore, ignore China. But in terms of when you look to the region, what is your priority? Uh, and Reagan sees Japan. And I think in terms of the Cold War, Reagan got that absolutely, absolutely right. And, you know, we can talk more about his uh, management of the U.S.-Japan alliance in, in a little bit. But then once once Reagan's in the White House, and you had alluded to this, um, Nixon is you know, in some exile and disgrace in New York, hiding out in his apartment in New York. You know, it's just a few years after he left the White House uh, from from Watergate. Uh, but Nixon is still a very shrewd uh, political tactician and a, and a very capable geopolitical strategist. And so he just starts writing Reagan these regular letters, sometimes 11, 12 pages, single space, sometimes almost every week. Uh, and and Reagan enjoys these because Nixon is just dispensing free political advice. Nixon's very gracious. He says, you're the president now. I'm not. I'm only at your disposal. I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. That said, I'm one of the few people in the world who knows what it's like to sit in that chair in the Oval Office. And and uh, and I'm I'm a fellow Republican and I I'm a patriotic American. I want you to succeed. And so he gives Reagan political advice on how to manage the Democrats. He gives him strategic advice on how to deal with the Soviets. He gives them personnel advice. You know, I think you should pick this person, not get that person. And Reagan takes some of the advice. He ignores some of the advice. He's, you know, Nixon's right about some things, wrong about some things, but it, it restores a certain trust and affection uh, bet between the two. So that's it, also a really interesting part of the story. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. I'm fascinated by Richard Nixon. Um, I just think, you know, he's such an interesting figure and I, I know he's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea, but, um, I think, you know, when it comes to, to at least Republican politicians of the 20th century, he's he's right up there with the, at least in intelligence. Um, you know, he had some flaws, um, paranoia and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, I mean, he was he was just a fascinating, fascinating figure. And for those who are listening, if you had missed it, we are talking to author William Inbutton and um, his just released book, The Peacemaker, which you can get wherever you purchase books. And I've also included an Amazon link in the show notes. So just click that bad boy and get yourself a copy. I guarantee you, 
you're a history aficionado or not, you're going to want this book. It's really, really good. And so my next question is um, another part that struck out at me, and and I was aware of this, um, but I like how you included it because I think it sometimes maybe gets overlooked, but that's Reagan's religiosity, Mm -hmm. uh, which you mentioned is one of the pillars of his approach. So I was hoping Mm -hmm. that you could um, give us just a little bit of, of detail into um, his religious thinking, because it was it really was central to his the way he saw this. Yeah, and I'm glad you asked about that, Sean, because this was another one of the, frankly, surprises for me in researching and writing the book uh, is, you know, the public image of Reagan had been he would use religious language in some of his speeches, you know, God bless America, things like that. Uh, but he, you know, never, he very rarely went to church while he was in the White House. The first lady was, you know, dabbling in astrology. And so uh, it wasn't taken seriously that this was a core part of who, who Reagan was. It was rather just something he'd use for, for political gain. But, um, and a few other authors have, have highlighted his actual genuine deep Christian faith. Paul Kengor especially has done some good work on this. So I want to give credit where credit is due, but, in the case of my research, I was just floored by a very deep, genuine Christian faith on, on Reagan's part, and also how he used it uh, as a key uh, instrument in his Cold War strategy. And I'll just give some examples there. First, on the on the personal faith part, um, uh, he, and this is where I read every entry of his diaries and a lot of his private letters, and this is where the private Reagan comes out. He's not planning these as press releases or to get votes from these things. Um, so... Two months after he is sworn in as president, he's nearly assassinated. You know, the crazed uh, John Hinckley uh, shoots him with a 22 pistol uh, multiple times right outside the, the Washington Hilton. Uh, we know now that Reagan came within inches, within minutes of death. It's a terrifying wow. episode, um, how close he came to bleeding out. He's rushed to the emergency room at GW Hospital. And while he's on the operating table, uh, you know, losing losing consciousness, he prays that God will forgive the the troubled young man who tried to kill me. And Reagan connects it very explicitly to his own Christian faith. He essentially says that just as God has forgiven me for my sins, how can I ask him to heal me if I don't forgive the, the troubled young man who shot me? And we only know about that because Reagan writes that in his diary, which he never intended to become public. Mm-hmm. Um then later, Reagan also writes in his diary, once he's recovering from the assassination, I think that God has spared me, uh, that he healed me and spared me so that I can bring the Cold War to a peaceful end, so that I can um, so that I can end this awful Cold War. And of course, a key partner in that is the Pope, John Paul II, who two months later in May of 1981 also survives an assassination attempt, also comes within minutes of death. That one, we don't know for sure, but seems to have been sponsored by the KGB because the Soviets hated the Pope almost yeah. as much as they hated Reagan. Uh, and so that... Uh, so that's, I think, partly what gives Reagan the the strength of character, the resolve to defy his critics, uh, to to deal with you know low approval ratings during during a difficult time, um, uh, to hold to a strategic vision as he really feels like he's um, he's got a you know strength and comfort and guidance from from God on on this. Um, another part of the personal Reagan that comes out towards the end is when he's meeting with Gorbachev, especially their last summit in Moscow in 1988. Reagan is just deeply grieved that Gorbachev is an atheist. And Reagan spends a lot of time trying to persuade Gorbachev to believe in God. And this is not because he thinks it'll make him surrender in the Cold War, although he hopes that's too. He's worried about Gorbachev's soul. He's come to care for this guy. And he, he thinks he's missing out on the most important part of life and, and hope for hope for heaven. Um, so that's that's what I mean about Reagan's personal faith. And then, you know, the final component, of course, is uh 
Reagan sees the Soviet Union's atheism, its oppression of Christians and Jews, of Protestants, of Catholics, of Orthodox, of Jews, as a key vulnerability. He thinks, what kind of wicked system would put people in the gulag just for trying to go to church, or just for trying to read the Bible, or just for trying to travel to Israel in the case of in the case of the Jews, or just for trying to hold peaceful Shabbat, you know, Sabbath services on, on Friday nights? And so Reagan is doing everything he can to support uh, religious believers behind the Iron Curtain. He's He's having, you know, the CIA is helping smuggle Bibles to them. They're broadcasting sermons there. He's regularly haranguing the Soviets about, I want you to release these, you know, these different uh, religious prisoners from the from the gulag. Um, he's talking about it in his in his speeches. Uh, for him, it is a vulnerability in the Soviet system that they, you know, are so persecute their religious believers. But it's also a chance for him to support and inspire those religious believers to work against their own government. And they hated their own government because their government was so, uh, you know, so 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 vicious to them and denying their freedom to practice their faith. So that became, that was a surprisingly big part of the story for me. Yeah, it's, it's, it was fascinating to read it. Um, the one part that I, I was really not aware of, and because who was, was how he prayed for John Hinckley. And that mm-hmm. was very eye-opening, I guess. Um, fascinating just to, to see him. You know, he's sitting there practically dead mm-hmm. and he's thinking this and it's, it's just, it, I don't know that I would have. <laughs> That's not what I would have been thinking. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 man. Me, me neither. He's a better man than I am. But yeah. this also goes, you know, just a brief comment. Um, Reagan didn't hold personal grudges. Um, this is why he was able to build a good friendship with Nixon while he's president is, you know, he and Nixon got over there. He forgave Nixon their past political differences. You know, Nixon had done some pretty vicious things against Reagan in some of their past campaigns, right? But Reagan didn't hold political grudges. Grudges. He was competitive. He liked to win. He's very competitive. But for him, it was about advancing a goal, advancing policies rather than, uh, you know, personal vengeance against his against his enemies. And that's um, that's also a key to understanding uh, his his success as president is he's all about what's best for the country and what's best for the long term strategy rather than settling personal scores or holding grudges. That That's so, so well said. And I think that was part of what made him such a great leader, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, really could get over stuff that I probably could not have. Done yeah, me, over. me neither. Like I said, he's he's more gracious than I am. Yeah. Um, now again, gosh, I plan on getting further, but um, I'm fascinated by a couple of the personalities that he chose, and one was um his chief of staff, and that was um James Baker the third, mm-hmm. um, who's still alive. You know, mm-hmm. I think he's 92 or something. Um, yeah, but he's he to me having lived through all this, because I was born in 1970, for those who don't know. Um, so I lived through a lot of this. And one of the most fascinating names of the 80s and early 90s uh, was James Baker. You know, he mm-hmm. was uh, a very big figure, whether he was Reagan's chief of staff or later George H.W. Bush's secretary of state. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just, at least in my mind, he's a giant. And by the way, historians out there, there's not a lot done on him. So mm-hmm. hmm, if somebody wants to write a book or a dissertation, there you go. But yeah. You also had George Schultz, and you mentioned mm-hmm. um, how he wasn't the first pick for Secretary of State. Obviously, that was Alexander Haig, but then they mm-hmm. come back to George Schultz. And I think George Schultz doesn't get a whole lot of credit, so I was glad to see him um, in the book. Could you t- tell us a little bit about these two gentlemen? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you highlighted them. Um, and I'll, I'll take them both in turn. And, and, you know, Baker, supremely important figure, uh, especially for Reagan's successes, right? And, um, but it also shows Reagan's magnanimity and commitment to, uh, to winning rather than just personal loyalty. So Baker had been the campaign manager for George H.W. Bush, who's Reagan's main rival for the 1980 nomination, right? So Re- Baker is not a longtime Reaganite. Um, and it's only after Reagan defeats Bush in the primary and then picks him as his running mate. Uh, you know, Reagan had plenty of his own uh, staff who'd been with him a long time, some very capable people, you know, Ed Meese, Dick Allen, some others. But Reagan decides to pick Baker as his chief of staff, even though Baker was not quite as conservative as Reagan and had not been a part of the loyal team earlier because Reagan wanted to succeed. And he knew that Baker was going to be the best manager among any of the other candidates. And Reagan, for all of his strengths, as I lay on the book, is a terrible manager. I mean, he doesn't pay a lot of attention to management. He doesn't like to resolve staff controversies. Um, uh, You know, certainly nobody is perfect. This is one of his one of his bigger liabilities as president. But he knows he needs to compensate for that. And so he picks Baker to be the White House chief of staff. And Baker is just very effective as as chief of staff and really does help run the the trains run on time and helps take Reagan's uh, strategic priorities and principles and actually get them implemented and 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 have them uh, have them put into practice. and then, of course, Baker serves as Treasury of the Secretary in the second term. Uh, again, very capable there, helping manage uh, some really difficult uh, trade relations we have with Japan, uh, helping to keep the Reagan economic boom going, uh, helping to uh, smooth over some trade tensions we have with Canada and and other others as well. Um, and so, again, a really important legacy there, too. And then George Schultz. I'm so glad you asked about Schultz. Uh, I try to make a case in my book for Schultz as <clears throat> the greatest Secretary of State since George Marshall, I think. Um, I know that'll sound like high praise. Yes, that does mean I'm putting Schultz even above Henry Kissinger and James Baker, who I also think well of. But um, Schultz is uh, a a key partner for Reagan. The Reagan-Schultz tandem is incredibly powerful, and they share a, a common vision of getting the Soviet Union to a negotiated surrender. They they share a common vision of balancing pressure and force on the Soviet Union with some diplomatic outreach, but they also have some complementary skills. You know, Reagan is more the strategic visionary, whereas Schultz is a very skilled manager and an expert negotiator, and he can take Reagan's strategic principles and really put them into practice. And <clears throat> One reason why Schultz succeeds where his, you know, unfortunate predecessor Al Haig had failed is Schultz always remembered that he, Schultz, is not the president. Reagan's the president and I'm the secretary of state. Haig had always wanted himself to be the president. And that was, uh, and, and, you know, that, that, that is not, that's not going to work. Uh, so, uh, so when you look at the diplomacy with the Soviets, you know, with, with Gorbachev and the, and the senior Soviet leadership, but also, uh, a number of the other successes, you know, eventually a peaceful settlement in the Iran Iraq war, the peaceful Democrat transition uh, from a military government to a democracy in South Korea, in Taiwan, in the Philippines, uh, transforming U.S.-Japan relations from an economic rivalry to a strategic alliance and strategic partnership, um, maintaining strong support for Taiwan while still managing tensions with China and even working with China to counter the Soviets. These are very complicated uh moves on the chessboard. Uh, and Schultz uh, is able to pull them all off, of course, with you know key leadership from Reagan there. So it's a masterful record. Uh, and I, I think he deserves much more of his due than he's been get, given credit for thus far. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, we can just look at modern events, current events, um, to see how difficult these things are to manage yeah. these relationships. Um, you know, just when you thought the Cold War was over, 
<laughs> suddenly yeah. um it's kind of back maybe worse than 19 since 1983 mm-hmm. um and when you've got a baker and a schultz um it's it, it's helpful that's for sure uh, i don't know that we have anybody like that right now um because i i do agree with you i think jane uh baker but then you've got george schultz man you're talking about giants yeah this game yes yeah. um and able to stay in the background and not um mess around too much so um we've I've got one more question to ask because we're running short on time, mm-hmm. um, but that's the end chapter. Um, you talk about the end game a little mm-hmm. bit, and um, sadly, there's just so much we could get into. We could talk for hours, um, but yeah. later in the book, you get into Iran-Contra mm-hmm. and how that wounded Reagan, mm-hmm. and I'm fascinated with, I mean, even Thatcher, and I think the British ambassador had mentioned how you know Reagan was besieged here at mm-hmm. home, um, 86, 87, and yet he overcame that. And, yeah. Um, I, I mean, today nobody mentions Iran Contra, mm-hmm. uh, Contra gate, whatever. Like it's very, very rarely mentioned. Um, he's given credit for ending the cold war. So mm-hmm. how did he do that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Let me give you my you know quick top line take on, on Iran Contra. And again, you know, I, I hope your listeners will be able to read the book and get more of the full, full story there, but also connecting it to the peaceful end, end of the Cold War. Uh, so, so very briefly, for those who aren't familiar with the scandal, it's a really bizarre one, um, but involved um, two different policy goals. The first was uh, there was a considerable problem in the Middle East of Iran sponsoring terrorist groups that were taking Americans hostage, uh, primarily in Lebanon. So Iran was using Hezbollah different Hezbollah affiliated groups to take Americans hostage. Uh, And it was having a very hard time getting any of those hostages released. Um, And so Reagan authorized through a a quiet partnership with Israel and a number of other uh, intermediaries uh, selling American arms to Iran um, in return for the, the release of hostages. Then uh, the other challenge the Reagan administration faced was maintaining the funding of the anti-communist Contra forces fighting against the communist regime, Sandinista regime in Nicaragua, very far away from the Middle East, right? Um, and Congress had cut off funding for the Contras. And so even though Reagan wanted to support the Contras, he uh, he was not doing a lot himself for that. But unbeknownst to him, a couple of his staff, primarily Ollie North and John Poindexter on the NSC, start taking the money from the arms sales to the Iranians, taking this Iranian money and diverting it to the Contras and funding the Contras. So uh, first point to make about this scandal, and it is a scandal, is it's the only scandal I've come across in American history where it's done for entirely pure policy motives. No one's getting rich off this. There's no sex scandal involved. It's not about uh, breaking into your enemies, uh, political enemies' offices to run for re-election or anything like that. It's purely for this policy goal of releasing hostages and supporting anti-communist uh, forces in Central America. But it also breaks some laws and it also doesn't work. Iran doesn't release very many hostages uh, and it's not getting enough money to the, to the, con- the Contras anyway. Uh, and it's a product largely of Reagan's lousy management style. You know, the fact that he is not paying more attention to what is going on, the fact that he's letting himself be you know, somewhat deluded into thinking if we sell these arms to the Iranians that they'll, they'll release the hostages. Uh, it's just a very bad, bad series of moments on his part. And then because he is such an optimist, he wants to believe the best about himself and others, he has a hard time even admitting that this is what he's been doing. He doesn't come clean with the American people initially. But then a few things, a few things change. Um, first, First Lady Nancy Reagan gives some big credit here, as well as a few other key figures. Uh, they confront Reagan. Um, 
and tell him, Mr. President, you've got to come clean with the American people about what you're trying to do here and admit that it was wrong. And he does. He gives a you know full-throated mea, mea culpa speech. It's so effective that even the New York Times says this was a great speech. And they were not big fans of big fans of Reagan. Um, and so he comes clean, he 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 gets he get he gets past that part of it, and then he goes to Berlin in June of 1987. And he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And I, I, I emphasize that timing because part of why Reagan gets past Iran Contra is he realizes I was letting myself to get diverted into something of a sideshow there. I need to go back to the main uh, priority, which is defeating Soviet communism. And I've always hated that Berlin wall. And here's a chance to go make a clear call to Gorbachev and to the people of Berlin that we support the people of Berlin and their desire for freedom. And that wall needs, needs to come down. And so that's where Reagan regains his political and policy momentum uh, in pressing, uh, pressing the, the Soviet Union to, you know, allow, allow more freedom to reduce nuclear weapons and so on and so forth. And so that's why his last year and a half in office includes incredible successes, such as the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, where uh, he and Gorbachev abolish an entire class of nuclear weapons. And then, uh, Gorbachev beginning to ease up the Soviet boot on, on Eastern Europe. Uh, and so that's that, that peaceful end of the Cold War can't be understood aside from Reagan also getting past that Iran Contra scandal. Yeah, it's it's masterful. It's mm-hmm. masterful. I think um, sometimes we take for granted, you know, Reagan was more the big and, and you've touched on it, kind of the big ideas guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a masterful politician in his own right. And yeah. get over that. I, I don't know. I don't know too many who could have done it. Um, yeah. He had just a deep bond with the American people. He was called the great communicator and, and, and deservedly so. And this is why he wins a strong election in 1980, wins a record setting you know, landslide reelection in 1984. And then when his successor, you know, Vice President Bush wins in 1988, a lot of people, you know, plenty of people supporting Bush, but a lot of people were really voting for a third Reagan term. Um, and again, that's not just because he, you know, said pretty things that, that made them, made them feel good. It's because he connected American values with success successful policies and always stayed true and kept faith, I think, with with the American people. And, and voters will will reward that, um, even if at times they may not have been you know, so sure about his policies or where these going to work. Eventually, they saw those successes. And so, uh, uh, you know, times are a little bit different today. But as you pointed out earlier, we're dealing with a lot of these same challenges. And um, I, I hope that readers will find in my book you know, some helpful insights for our current challenges today, too. Well, it's a great book, and I encourage everybody to get out there. Like I said earlier, we have a link in the show notes page. Go to Amazon. You can get that on your doorstep in a couple of days. It's Christmas time. Get it for the history buff in your family um, or get it for yourself as your own personal little gift to yourself because it is a very, very fascinating book. Um, William, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we're running hard, hard up against that time. So um, I, I really had a good time talking to you and I appreciate you taking your time out just a day after the book came out to come talk to, to, to us. It's been a real honor, Sean. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed it too. Best wishes to you. Thank you. You have a good day. Bye-bye. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com. 